0: Welcome to Dialogue and Debate. My name's Ed Newell. I'm the Chief Executive here at Cumberland Lodge. If this is your first time with us, Dialogue and Debate is our regular series of webinars where we respond to key themes emerging from our Cumberland Lodge conferences and tackle other important topical issues. Our last Dialogue and Debate took place in December when we explored how film and documentary makers can have social impact, Panellists included Ken Loach, director of numerous social issue dramas including Cathy Come Home and I, Daniel Blake. And you can watch this on demand via the Read Watch Listen page on our website or on SoundCloud and other major podcasting platforms. Today we'll be discussing the possible implications of Brexit, particularly in terms of our sense of identity and on relationships between the UK and other countries, And within our four nations. To do this we're joined by four expert panelists, Catherine Barnard, Professor of European Union and Labour Law at the University of Cambridge and Deputy Director of UK in a Changing Europe, Anne May Janssen, Head of European Engagement at Universities UK International, Emily Mansfield, Principal Economist for Europe at the Economist Intelligence Unit and Sir Stephen Wall formerly the UK's Permanent Representative to the EU, and Prime Minister Tony Blair's Senior Advisor on EU Matters. And to cap both these, former Chair of Trustees here at Cumberland Lodge. Thank you all very much indeed for joining us. Thank you. We invite those who are watching to submit questions during the webinar. And if you're watching live on Zoom, you can use the Q&A function. Alternatively, you can comment on our Facebook live stream. And we'd also like to hear your views and questions via Twitter. Please tweet at Cumberland Lodge using the hashtag dialogue debate. Now, before we turn to our panelists, we're going to start with a quick opinion poll just to test the mood of the meeting. So the question is going to pop up on your screen now. And it's this, are you concerned about how the UK's new relationship with the EU will affect our sense of identity and belonging? Yes, no, or unsure? Let's have a, wait for a moment to see what pops up. 73% say yes, 15% say no, 12% unsure. Thank you very much indeed. That's a pretty clear uh, view of it. We're gonna revisit that question uh, at the end of the webinar, just to see whether we've changed our collective mind uh, on this after we've had the discussion. Now, we're going to turn first of all to Stephen. Stephen, you've got uh, a book out, new book out, which I have here. You can't see it with the blue, with the green screen. It's uh, called "Reluctant European Britain and the European Union from 1945 to Brexit," and your book describes how over. Uh, decades, our sense of national identity has been in conflict with our political and economic need for partnership with continental Europe. Do you think then that the deal that's been struck is going to resolve that conflict?
1: Uh, no, in a word, um, uh, partly because, of course, the deal itself uh, is a very minimal deal. This is the, this is the, the the bare minimum, we're seeing every day that uh, how bare it is, um, and it does nothing uh, to cover, or very little to cover, services, and nothing to cover financial services, uh, which, in which the UK was the dominant member of the European Union and which account for 8% or so of our GDP, nor does it say anything about the relation, the sort of political relationship in terms of foreign policy and security cooperation. So in that sense, the deal uh, is only the beginning of a process of working out what our new relationship with the rest, with the EU uh, should be. I think, I mean, the, the issue really that I was trying to address in the book is is the sort of conflict between national identity and, and national interest um, and, uh, as I have already suggested, I think, uh, our national interest, I think, is going to point us always back towards the European Union for trade reasons and political reasons. We are, we are after all, uh, whatever our difference is, they are, the rest of the European Union is our biggest trading partner, and uh, we share Democratic uh, values, which we try and exercise uh, uh, in the world, so we ha- we're going to have to try and get back to a, a relationship there. The other thing about, about national identity, of course, is it, it, that in itself is a sort of moving uh, issue. I mean, our national identity now is vastly different from what it was when we when we joined. Uh, we're a much more diverse uh, country than we than we were. Uh, and I mean, as a sort of rather down-to-earth illustration of that, I mean, if you'd thought 30 years ago that two of what were the sort of great British uh, motor car manufacturers, Rover, Land Rover, and Jaguar would be owned by an Indian company. You would have thought that inconceivable, but now that's part of the normal pattern of life. And then, as I think we're going to discuss later, the question of our identity in terms of the nations that make up, the United Kingdom, Scotland in particular, that, is, that was already obviously in question and has now been thrown up in the air in a very dramatic way and I think will, will probably be, um, uh, you know, beyond COVID, our, our dominant domestic story for the next few years.
0: Thank you very much indeed. We'll turn, I'm sure, to lots of those points you've made uh, in due course. Moving on now to Catherine. Catherine, um, how do you see the UK's relationship with the EU playing out both in the immediate future and what's the longer term scenario, do you
2: think? Well, thank you and thank you very much indeed for the generous invitation to be here. Um, I would answer that question with one word, fractious. Fractious, difficult, even acrimonious. And if, if the um, evidence the last couple of weeks um, is anything to go by, we will see this in spades. Um, I think it was very unfortunate that the UK decided not to give full ambassadorial status to the EU representative in the UK. Uh, I think it was equally unfortunate that the um, Commission seemed to have almost triggered Article 16, that's the emergency break provision in the Northern Ireland Protocol, almost unthinkingly. Article 16 is the nuclear weapon which should be used only in extremists and to handle it with such uh, disregard I think is very unfortunate. The rhetoric on both sides has been um, extremely poor. Um, I am minded of the fact that we have essentially Um, The case of two parents getting divorced and once they're divorced um, they've still got to cooperate because they've got to look after the kids and yet they carry on sniping at each other in this uh, very unfortunate way. The other thing I would say is it is worth looking um, at some of the work that UK and Changing Europe has done on values. The coalition that Boris Johnson managed to pull together in 2019 to win the election um, was a coalition of values, not a coalition of economics. There's in fact very different views amongst that coalition on economics, but where they coalesce is around values. And I think you can fully expect that uh, because Boris Johnson recognizes this, um, when things get difficult, it's good to throw a bit of red meat to this core support, which is anti-EU sentiment.
0: Wow, well, that's gonna really get us uh, talking. Moving uh, now on to uh, uh, Emily. Uh, Emily, we tend to focus on the economic input of trade deals, but thinking about trade deals, they've got other impacts as well, uh, tying us closer to other countries and their cultures. Uh, And do you see our sense of identity being affected by the sort of trade deals that we're pursuing? To give one example, are we likely to get pulled closer to US culture?
3: I think this is a really interesting, slightly unusual uh, way to look at this question. Um, I have to say though, I I think my immediate answer to will we be pulled closer to to US culture is probably not. Uh, If we look at the current trade data, the US is actually already our largest export market. If we just look country by country, so not at the EU as a block, that's what matters when we're looking at cultural issues. So about 15% of our exports go to the U.S., uh, well ahead of 10% going to Germany, which is the second biggest export uh, market. It's also our second biggest import market. So we actually already have quite strong trade ties with the U.S. and also strong cultural ties as well. If we think of anything from Netflix to Disney, the U.S. has pretty strong cultural clout and and soft power in general um, in the world. I think it's possible that, that ties with between the UK and the US will strengthen or at the very least stabilize under Joe Biden um, but I'm not sure that the cultural impact uh, will really increase um, because of Brexit and in particular that that trade deal does seem to be at fairly low down the US's list of priorities at the moment given how many domestic issues uh, that they need to uh, concern themselves with at the moment. At the same time we are pursuing um, a whole bunch of other trade deals around the world, so of course we've signed a trade deal with Japan uh, and we're prioritizing uh, deals with Australia, New Zealand and some Indo-Pacific uh, nations and we've got rollover agreements in place with countries from Iceland to Switzerland to Singapore. So. It is possible that we will start to see perhaps a bit more of a a global perspective um, maybe around how the media is reporting which countries um, we're talking about as these these trade deals and these changing trade relationships uh, start to come into play, but of course as Stephen said at the end of the day the EU is by far our biggest trade partner so almost half of our exports go to the EU and at the end of the day Trade for trade, geography is just really important, Um, the EU is on our doorstep and we will continue to be trading predominantly uh, with them. So I think our kind of cultural affinities will remain with those countries in Europe that have the biggest soft power and with which we trade the most. So I'm thinking in particular um, of France and Germany. I think, yes, these ties could loosen, but that they're really not going to disappear.
0: Thank you very much indeed. And we're going to move into the, the, the world of, of higher education and its wider um, impact as well. and, and May, um, pulling out of the Erasmus uh, scheme, and it's going to have a huge impact on our interaction with our uh, continental European neighbours. Um, what are your hopes and fears for higher education and from the replacement Turing scheme? And perhaps you could just say probably a bit about Erasmus for those uh, who are watching that, that don't really know uh, much about it
4: yeah sure thank you um, and thanks for the invitation to to join us today it's really lovely to be here um, so erasmus for those who don't know is uh, the world's biggest student mobility exchange scheme there is um, uh, the new program which will start this uh this year has about 24 25 billion euros in terms of money for universities to spend uh to send their students um predominantly you see it happening within Europe but it's a global scheme so you know students can go all across the world and during the negotiations the EU and the UK couldn't agree predominantly on the financial settlement. Um, I do think everyone's talking about the UK um, retreating and and, and and opting out while I think well it was a negotiation and um, in the end it was it just came down to the finances. The, the UK's annual contribution to Erasmus would have been around 600 million a year and would have gotten around out around 250 to 300. So a gap of at least 300 million a year in the current economic climate with Covid and not really knowing how the Brexit deal would pan out, I think, is understandable that a government could make that commitment um that being said it is very sad still that of course and we as a sector are very disappointed that we're not part of erasmus because what erasmus offered you i think indeed was a lot of universities is this you know a fixed framework through which uh, universities operate to their exchanges with students and not just students but also staff and there are other parts of erasmus that we now no longer have access to which are strategic partnerships and uh These are, you know, for some universities, really important sources of collaboration with their European partners in terms of hopes and fears. um, My hope is that we as a sector can make the Turing scheme work and that it can be a success and that we will get uh, match funding uh, commitments from other governments to send their students to uh, to the UK. And that we get a multi-annual financial commitment from the UK government to really, you know, the commitment to have this scheme for a long period of time. So I'm I'm hoping that even though we won't have many things that we do have in Erasmus and it's solely based on student exchanges, I'm hoping that at least that part of the sector, it will provide us uh, with what the sector needs. Because, you know, and that is where the fear bit comes in as well. Um, The UK isn't particularly good in sending students abroad. Um, I think we had a goal to double our uh, output student mobility from six and a half to 13%. And we're not nearly there. Of course, the pandemic uh, changed things as well. But if you look at Germany, they've got 20 or 25% of all students going abroad. So we were already kind of lagging behind. And my fear is that if we don't get match funding in place for students in the EU to come to the UK, uh, mobility is based on reciprocity so that might influence uh, uh, in a negative way the ability of the scheme to deliver students to go abroad and also in a wider sense talking about cultural diversity and talking about how that impacts the uk erasmus is one of the reasons why we have such a diverse campuses at, in our universities and one of you know students want to come here not just because the uk has as uh, as great institutions, but not just for the country, but also because our universities are uh, compared to other countries quite international and it would be a shame to lose that. um, And not have as many students come to the UK uh, for their exchanges, which then would also negatively impact the experience of UK students who can experience an international campus that way, so I think yeah my hope is that it will be a success. Because if it isn't, um, uh, we stand a lot to lose, not just in terms of exchanges, but also in terms of, um, you know, opportunities for our own UK students here in the UK.
0: Thank you very much indeed. I mean, while we're dealing with Erasmus, perhaps we can bring Catherine in here because uh, wearing your university hat on, you're seeing this right up front. Perhaps you've got any comments on how... Uh, this decision is, uh, is going down in the university sector and what you think the challenges are in the, in the short term and the longer term.
2: Yes, uh, thank you. Cambridge has made a lot of use of the Erasmus programme, um, including in my own faculty, the law faculty, um, and so it is of course with great regret that we have seen it gone. Um, the university is trying to improve its bilateral relationships um, with some success, Um, Of course, the university wants to participate in the Turing scheme, but we are somewhat alarmed by the lack of detail. I think we've only seen a press release. And the reality is that wheels of universities, both in the UK and um, abroad, move slowly. And these schemes need to go through various university committees, uh, all of which takes time. And so... um, there's quite a lot of uncertainty for the next cohort of students about exactly what's going to happen to them particularly important in modern languages where of course a year abroad is an integral part of their degree.
0: Yeah some big big challenges there and uh, maybe part of the Turing thing you've actually got to crack the code to work out what it's all about. We're
2: good at that at Cambridge.
0: Yeah can I, I'm just picking out on this. As we've got a question that's coming straight away on this issue. It says, uh, from, from AF, has asked, with Erasmus no longer an option for exchange, do you expect the importance of city twinning to increase? There we are. That's an interesting question. I don't know if anyone wants to uh, have a, a pot shot at that.
4: Well, I, I, can, I can have the first go. Yeah, it, it may. It may. Uh, I think we'll, it'll take some time for any um effects on that type of relationships to really you know um demonstrate itself in the future i think it may i think um you know there is really a a a task not just for the uk government but us but for us as a sector as well to try and, and keep those relationships with our european partners on the forefront and really um, make sure that with the Turing scheme we can still exchange students and thereby hopefully the way I see the Turing scheme because we only have funding for one year at the moment and as Catherine said there are, there are aside from the press release, there are no details out there yet. Uh, we know the Department for Education is pushing is, is trying to really hard to get more information out. Um, however, the way I see the Turing scheme at the moment, it's one year, so I see it as a pilot. And I'd really, together with our European partners, and we're already asking them, so as soon as this is launched, tell us what works, tell us what doesn't work, so that we can tweak and and improve on the scheme, because I imagine for something that has to be, you know, turned around and, and produced in such a short period of time, there's probably lots to improve, and that's kind of my hope Uh for the years coming that this first year will be a sort of a pilot and a test and after that with the sector not just in the uk but also with our partners across europe we can try and improve that make it work better for everyone
1: and i think unless unless government is prepared to put money into local authorities for this purpose which i think is unlikely and local authorities being as strapped for cash as they are that's going to be the biggest inhibition i would have thought
0: thank you let's move on from Erasmus, to go back to some of the things that Stephen was talking about earlier on and Catherine uh, picked up on. So Stephen, you were saying there's loads that's got to be done uh, post this deal. Uh, and and Catherine, you were saying that you know, you know, relations are fractious, there's the, the divorce is, uh, is, has been acrimonious, um, and there's going to be lots of sniping. Perhaps we can try and tease out what where you think uh, the the real difficult issue. What they, what what the real difficult issues are going to be? Perhaps in the next few years uh, and beyond. I think we do a bit of crystal ball gazing. What should we be looking out for?
2: Do you want me to start? If you if you wanted, please. So I mean I think we're seeing this uh, today, literally today, with um, Michael Gove um, finally acknowledging that the issues that be experienced on the Irish border, the GB uh, Northern Ireland border, are not teething troubles, um, that they are systemic. Now that's my word, not his. uh, the Prime Minister said, oh, these are only teething troubles. But actually what we have seen is that the Pandora's box has been opened and it's been opened because um, this is the essence of a free trade agreement bolted onto to special arrangements for Northern Ireland, which the Prime Minister agreed in the withdrawal agreement in 2019. And the point is that, um, in respect to Northern Ireland in particular, uh, there are two places where a border could be. North-South, um, which is unacceptable because of the Good Friday Agreement, which only leaves one other place, which is East-West. And East-West essentially means a border down the Irish Sea. Why do you need a border there? Because um, there is concern about uh, the UK um, de-aligning, i.e. not complying with EU rules on SBS sanitary and phytosanitary issues and therefore goods which go from GB into Northern Ireland um, end up in the south and so therefore there needs to be checks on those goods. We know that uh, currently the border control posts at Larne have been suspended uh, because of threats um, to the staff operating those borders because Borders in Northern Ireland are inherently sensitive. And of course, uh, the DUP, the Democratic Unionist Party and its supporters, uh, never wanted a border down the Irish Sea because um, they say that Northern Ireland is part of the United Kingdom, which of course it is. But the, this was the inevitable consequence of um, a Brexit vote, and uh, a Brexit vote combined with a very hard Brexit, which is based on a free trade agreement, not, as Theresa May wanted, um, the United Kingdom as a whole stay in a customs union. So we're already seeing that volatility um, on the border and those who want to cause trouble using it as an opportunity, not helped, of course, by the very clumsy handling of the Article 16 um, issue by the
1: Commission last week.
0: Thank you very much, Stephen. I mean, I guess it's probably your territory as well.
1: Yeah, well, I think that, I mean, I agree with everything that that Catherine's said. I mean, the thing is that... uh, even within the European Union. I mean, the member states of the European Union were always very competitive with each other. I mean, I've, I spent 20 years dealing and working in the European Union. And I always used to say, you know, if we were all nice people, we wouldn't need the European uh, Union. And it's partly it's a set of rules designed to constrain national ambitions getting out of hand. That was the whole reason why it was founded after, you know, in, the, in the years after World War II. So what you will see, I think, is, is the countries of the European Union seeking to exercise competitive advantage vis-a-vis the UK, not surprisingly. and the big one of the biggest areas where they will seek to do that is in is in the services sector and the financial services sector uh, where we had a trade surplus i mean this this trade deal was in the interests of our partners, because it's it's about trade in goods where they have a big trade surplus. Of course, it was in their interest. It's not in their interest to do a, a good deal with us on financial uh, services. So that in itself is going to be uh, is going to be very uh, very fraught. And of course, the other factor is that the European Union will continue to make uh, laws and set standards. It is it is. One of the world's, if not the world's, biggest setter of, of of standards and digital standards. Digital, for example, is going to be is the is the area is the big sort of growth area at the uh, at the moment. And again, they will they will be setting the standards without us having any input except as lobbyists. We have no seat at the table, no no commissioner, no place in the European Parliament uh, anymore. So in all those areas, we will be we will be we will be sort of fighting a rearguard action to try and protect our interests. We have no natural vehicle for uh, for advancement them that's gonna be the biggest uh, the biggest difficulty. I mean, on the other side of the coin, I mean, if we sat back and looked at the world, you know, the, the problems that face the, uh, the world. Um, and in particular, you know, a new administration in the United States, how do we, as, as what used to be called the West, manage our relationships with Russia uh, and China? These are absolute areas where we in the European Union and the United States need to have coherent common policies. Now we've made it much more difficult to achieve that, but the, the, the need for it is it seems to be absolutely critical.
0: With that in mind, we've had a question in um, from John Poole, and perhaps we can uh, pick that up now. Uh, John has asked this. He says, cyber theft and invasion and intellectual property theft threatens trading relationships and peace. What steps should the UK take to use its influence with other countries to dissuade Russia and China from committing these proven offences and, in particular?" should we be urging the EU to join these efforts, despite their important trading relationships with the offenders? So perhaps um, various panelists might want to comment on that from their different angles.
1: Perhaps Stephen, do you want to kick off with, yeah, that. well, I mean, I think it's, yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely agree with the thought behind John's uh, question. Uh, I mean, it, it is, it is, uh, it is crucial. And the EU, I mean, it's not as if the EU kind of ne- neglect these issues. Uh, um, and there has to be, I mean, if you're, if, we're, if you're going to, I mean, we're not going to completely reset the balance of our relationship with China, for example, we're not going to suddenly, within the European uh, Union, let alone the UK, uh, have a vastly improved manufacturing uh, capacity, but we do, we could, we can only be effective vis-à-vis China if we do if we do try and work out what the boundaries of behaviour are, which we expect the Chinese to conform to, and are prepared to take some action uh, against China if they don't conform with that. I mean, I'm thinking about the Uyghurs, for example, um, in China, and the same applies to the same applies to uh, uh, to Russia. Now, the uh, I mean, the EU will will formulate its own policies, and they will. There, there will be divisions there. I mean, if you look at Russia, for example, Germany's interest in a close relationship with, with Russia because of energy dependency is a controversial question. So the EU may find it, may find it difficult to come to uh, coherent and effective uh, policies on that. Uh, and we, 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 the UK, it seems to me, may well on those issues find ourselves closer to the United States uh, than to the European Union.
0: Anyone else like to, to come in on this one?
3: I think, this is a really, I think this is a very interesting issue, the, um, the, the problem that is brewing between how the UK and the EU relate to China, given the stance of the US um, and the new US administration as well as the previous US administration. Um, and I think that, that we are going to find ourselves in a position where we do have to try and balance interests, economic interests, and also diplomatic interests. Um, and, of course, cyber theft, IP theft, all of the kind of digital privacy issues that the EU is grappling with at, at the moment are clearly things that, that need to be prioritized at the moment. And, and I think the UK is going to and will need to um, cooperate either with the EU or with the US, um, as seems appropriate, um, on these issues. But I think this is this is an issue that, that everyone is grappling with at the moment, not just the UK. And
0: if there's tension between EU and US, where do we... Uh... Where do you reckon we go?
3: I think ultimately, um, I mean, obviously we have very deep historical, political, diplomatic security defense ties with the US. Um, so these are important on a political level. Um, our economic ties with China are significant, but they're not as significant as they are for some countries in the EU, um, like Germany, for instance. Um, so I think we, we are going to be striking a balance, but, but perhaps I would err uh, slightly more in the US direction. I agree. Not- I
1: agree with that. I think you know, the, domest- the, domest- the domestic political imperative always pushes prime ministers towards the, towards the US. It is-, it, is a popular- it is a popular thing to be seen to be. And the fact that we have this ridiculous race for who's going to be the first person to take a phone call from the new president shows how important it is in terms of our domestic political positioning. And that's, gonna- that's not going to change. It's going to get more so, I think.
0: Let's turn uh, a bit more into do- domestic issues, internal domestic issues. And Kevin uh, Layden has asked this question said, what unique value will England offer not available elsewhere in 10 years and more? So something very specific about England, what would England, uh, uh, what unique value will England offer not available elsewhere in 10 years and more?
2: I think um, I would start by saying I hope England has got more to offer than being um, a historic relic. Um, and I hope that uh, there are three things that I think England, but I, I also know that colleagues in Scotland and Wales would um, say that they've got this too. Um, they would say um, science, particular in particular um, nanotechnology, um, uh, biosciences, And, of course, we have shown that we can lead the way in this look at the um, vaccine. Um, I think um, also England, but also Scotland and Wales have got a great deal to offer in respect of cultural issues. Um, But culture is dependent on um, easy movement of people. And of course, that brings us back to the issues um, of the trade deal. And of course, finally, um, we are um, world leading in respect of education, and um, I'm sure my fellow panellists would like to comment more on that. And so, again, we can offer opportunities there. Um, but then I would also say that Scotland and Wales have similar advantages. Um, at, and of course, uh, Northern Ireland has an outstandingly good university too. Um, but I think the more fundamental problem is, I noticed the question that focuses on England, Um, But of course, uh, this raises the issue then, Um, how do we stay together as a union? And how do we stay together as a union when one quarter of the union is disproportionate in terms of the size? And how do we actually develop some sort of structure which reflects the fact that Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland have also got an interest in what's coming out of Westminster when Westminster MPs um, can outvote all of their their neighbours in those matters.
0: Let's let's actually pick up a a question that followed on from from Kevin's um, from an anonymous attendee who said this, Kevin's question focusing on England rather than Britain flags an interesting point as it was primarily England that voted to leave. What are the panel's view around the English presumption and the strength of the union? Are we in danger of the entire union collapsing? Would a devolved English government help? There we are. Wow. Solved that one. (laughs) Who wants to... Kick off on have a go on that. No, right, kept, have a go.
1: I mean, I think. I mean, I think. I mean, I think. The, I think the answer is: is there a danger? I think the answer is. I think the answer is yes. I mean, devolution has happened in sort of fits and starts, and almost without, and certainly without proper thought. I mean, the reality is that on domestic uh, matters, members of the of the of the of the government are, are mostly um, ministers for England, not ministers for the devolved uh, for Scotland or for or for or for Wales. And there's no there's no rowing back on that. Uh, and uh, the 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 desire for independence in in, in Scotland is 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 clearly uh, very strong, and I think can only be can only be dealt with if we actually. Can offer uh, those governments, and more particularly the electorate in those in those in those nations, um, a, a good reason to stay within uh, a United Kingdom, and uh, part of that will it will it, will I'm sure be. Uh, Devolving further powers, although the powers they already have are very considerable. The other part of it is is trying to convince them that as the United Kingdom, in terms of our place in the world, we are we are stronger together than than uh, than, than separately. Uh, and I think that argument has to be made. And part of that argument, as Catherine implied, has to be actually looking at the constitutional arrangements within the United within the United Kingdom. And then we do have a rather absurd situation in which we have an entirely non-elected second chamber, and that second chamber is really the classic place where you could look to see proper, represent, proper representation uh, of, the, uh, uh, of the nations uh, of the UK in a way, I'm not necessarily modeled precisely on the arrangements in Germany with the Bundestag and the Bundesrat, but that might provide a model. I mean, that's not really the point. The point is this has to be, this has to be given really serious and I think urgent consideration. Uh, otherwise this thing will come to a head and whatever Boris Johnson says, if the Scots are really determined uh, to leave, he won't be able to stop them having a referendum in my view.
0: Do you think that the experience of Brexit and the, the hassle of untangling everything would? Do you think people would say actually, if we start to do something along those lines in the UK, we we just realise that it, there are it opens a Pandora's box of problems.
1: It might, but what I think what you're seeing at the moment, if you look at all the opinion polls, which show how far the SNP is ahead, what you're seeing is absolute identity politics. The SNP aren't being judged on their record, which is not that brilliant. It's ad- absolutely identity politics. And you've got to get away from that. Otherwise, we'll have exactly the same thing as happened in our referendum, where people were impervious to the factual arguments, uh, basically. Yeah. And part of that process is setting up some kind of uh, constitutional, conventional, whatever it might, it might be, so that actually people do focus on these things you can it might you know it might not change minds but it at least gives a possibility that people will kind of think have a chance to think more about the issues before they come to actually vote on whether to stay in the UK or not.
0: Thank you this is a really really big and important issue perhaps the other panelists want to come in on this.
2: Could, could I perhaps follow up? I, I agree no. entirely with what Stephen says, particularly about identity politics. You know, all the rational arguments about economics, which absolutely point to the union staying together, fall on deaf ears, particularly being made by people like Michael Gove and Boris Johnson, who played to the identity politics issues themselves in respect of Brexit. I want to make um, uh, two substantive points. One is that um, Westminster has been totally cavalier about um, the relations between with the devolved nations throughout the Brexit process. Um, there are numerous examples, but perhaps the most obvious one is uh, pushing through the Internal Market Act, um, which uh, the Scots and Welsh particularly perceive as doing very grave damage to their ability to um, uh, regulate in the areas which uh, they have power to do so. Um, the second, um thing is that the TCA, the Trade and cooperation Agreement uh, was pushed through the Westminster Parliament in five hours and there was no possibility for the Welsh and uh, Scottish Northern Ireland um, Parliament's assemblies to uh, vote on it. So they already feel that they are be- having Brexit is being done to them, that they are not uh, participating in the process. How do we try and do something more concrete? I think the one possible way forward would be to set up a Royal Commission um, with a short uh, time life, perhaps two years, it might sound quite long, but there's a lot of issues to consider. But the Royal Commission would at least have the um, freedom to think creatively about how to manage um, a proper uh, devolutionary setup where you've got one dominant player, does this mean that there should be greater dev- devolution to the regions in England? And then the moment you start thinking about that, do we say that there should be devolved um, parliaments in East Anglia, in the northeast and the northwest and so forth? And the moment you start thinking about that, that already becomes problematic. Um, but you need to have a lot of people giving this some really serious thought with considerable urgency because if not there is every chance particularly following the elections um, in Holyrood in May that we are heading for a major collision course in uh, in Scotland Um, we're already seeing the antagonism in Northern Ireland and then the Welsh are starting to say well what about us?
0: Well anyone else want to come in on this from different perspectives?
3: I guess the the one point that I would make, um, we did mention there that the fact that this could all take a while to sort out, and I think that although it is true that, that Boris Johnson ultimately probably can't block an independence referendum, he has lots of ways to drag his heels, so this could be dragged out for some years potentially. Um, it took three years to organise the last referendum. So then there is at least perhaps an opportunity um, to see how the opinion polls shift over that time. Perhaps there is an opportunity to try and heal those divisions. I don't know, perhaps that's overly optimistic, but to try and add an optimistic thread into this debate.
0: Anne and May, you might have a perspective on, on the UK, just to be interested in you, how you perceive it all. <laughs>
4: I always wonder how much I can say, being not a Brit uh, and having kind of viewed all of this from afar, even though I've lived in that for four and a half years, uh, right in the mix of all of this. um, I do, I do find it, I mean, I completely agree with everything's being said and I think that is a a really good analysis um, on terms of what's been happening. I am in no way a, a UK um, expert or historical connoisseur or uh, any of the sort of perspectives I bring is purely uh, what I observe as, as as a Dutch woman living in London. Um, I think it's a very, I think especially the whole, the argument about being stronger together um, is of course a funny one to be making after you left the EU. Um, but I think that is exactly as Stephen and Catherine have said, where the crux of it is. I mean, um, there are issues to be resolved here, quite technical, in terms of representation of the devolved nations and in terms of how do they, you know, have the feeling or actually get more influence on what they need and what they want. And it's not just the one big player of England kind of just mapping the course and, and, and doing what it feels is right. And I, I completely agree with Emily in terms of now is the time, and Catherine said that as well, now is the time to sort that out. Now is the time to try and uh, pull their heads together and think of how we, how can you make that work? How you can make that happen without the the union, um, yeah, falling apart and devolved nations saying, "Well, we'd better, you know, go at this alone." Um, yeah, I uh, that's basically what I would say because I think <laughs> as a non-Brit, it's a bit uh, difficult to really uh, comment on issues like this. But um, I, I do I do feel that. Although initially I thought as soon as the Brexit deal is done, we'll have a little bit of peace and quiet and things will settle down. But as Catherine said, just the last couple of weeks, both internationally with the EU and nationally within the UK, you've seen already a couple of developments that will point to a, a long road ahead of us um, with issues that really probably should have been addressed in the past uh, and will be addressed now. Because if, if there's one thing I do want to say as a, as a as a, uh, another perspective on the whole developments is that I think Brexit was the wrong answer to a problem that was evolving. And I think the fact that you see all of these things happening with the devolved nations is probably more a symptom of that Brexit isn't hasn't really addressed uh, what people hoped it would address. But yeah, I, I'd leave it at that.
0: <laughs> I mean, as someone who's moved over here, just I'm intrigued to note, do you feel that you've moved to Britain to England or the People's Republic of London? I mean, how do you? Uh,
4: well, me? I I personally feel that I've moved to Britain, but I am a massive UKophile. Um, I I feel I feel like I'm at home here, and I do my holidays within the UK. I've been everywhere in Wales and Northern Ireland and Scotland and different parts of England. I absolutely adore living here. Um, but that's 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 personal. I see I see the massive difference between London and the rest of the UK and I love London, but I also love the rest of the UK. Um, but I do. I've never as before moving here. I never really appreciated the tension and the difficulties between the devolved nations. When you're not in the UK, you don't see that. And especially if it's not your, you know, your, your daily bread and butter to get involved with these things. Um, I'm more attuned to that now. I I really didn't realise that when I moved here. Um, But I personally, but that's just because I love the UK so much, really feel that I live in the UK. But I can imagine that there are people who view that differently.
0: Thank you. We've we've been doing a bit of horizon scanning and saying that that what's coming up on the agenda is going to be something really significant concerning the, the Four Nations. I'm just wondering whether the panel might just think about, okay, what lessons have we learned from the whole EU referendum issue and, uh, and the process of Brexit? If we're now gonna be focusing on some really tricky internal UK issues, what are, what, are the, what are the lessons we can learn out of that process? What are the things we should be pushing to do? What are the things we should be avoiding to do?
1: Well, you can't. Yeah. You might say you can't get there from here. Um, <laughs> uh, I think. I mean, I think. I mean, one of one, one of the one of the lessons is is, uh, is I think to uh, that. I mean, ref, referendums are are uh, a very dodgy uh, instrument, um, uh, and in particular when they when they're used as they were in the case of Brexit to solve a, a, and do both European referendums. The one in nineteen seventy five was designed to heal a rift in the. In the Labour Party, and the one in 2016 was designed to protect the Conservative Party from the rise of uh, of, of of UKIP. So that's one 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 lesson I think is is. By and large, try and avoid them if you if you possibly can. Scotland is presents a, a different a different set of of of, uh, of issues, and I'm not really arguing that you, could, that you can avoid it, uh, but that when it happens, you should at least try and change the the, the, the climate of debate, as it were, in in uh, uh, in, in which in which it happens. Um, mm. I think that um, you know we 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 what we we have lacked really, and it's understandable, is a is a kind of breadth of debate uh, in our country about uh, our, you know, our position in the in, in the world, and a, and a long-term failure on the part of government during our membership of the European Union, actually to tell people in Britain what the benefits of membership were. It was always presented as, we would be worse off if we were out for the following reasons, uh, which was a negative argument rather than rather than a positive argument. Uh, and uh, when, you, when you come to the future of the United Kingdom, making the positive arguments uh, for why we should stick together seemed to me very, very important indeed.
0: I mean, just going down uh, sort of, uh... Trying to get people involved in discussion. Do you think a, a citizens' assembly approach is a, is a good one?
1: Well, it might be. I mean, we're perhaps not quite as geared to that in the way that the 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 the, 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 the French are. And whether 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 the whether there would be the interest, I think, is is uh, is a is a is a is a question.
2: Can I just add on citizens' assemblies? Actually, I've participated in one. Um, UK and Change Europe, uh, working with the Constitution Unit in UCL. Uh, did a a citizens assembly, a properly set up citizens assembly with a perfectly demographically balanced uh, group of people over a long weekend um, up in Manchester. And had people like me coming on and just talking about um, what Brexit might mean and what alternative trade relationships might be. And what was striking about it is at the very end of the um, pretty intensive uh, weekend, where everyone participated really with enthusiasm um, was that they went for a much softer form of Brexit. What they wanted was something sort of EEA, like European Economic Area, like light, Um, even with some form of free movement of persons. And then uh, the follow up was to go to uh, Westminster, where the participants then talked to Suella Braverman about what they wanted. And what was really striking is that she said, well, that's very interesting, but thanks, but no thanks. And of course, we are where we are. And so if citizens assemblies are going to work, they've got to have some sort of mechanism which does influence government in some form. Otherwise, they will be just disregarded as a talking shop.
0: But do you think that they have at least potential to sort of dilute the identity politics dimension of discussions and try and, and ramp up the, the rational <laughs> uh, argument dimension.
2: I mean, what really did strike me, um, having lived with these um, the participants for that long weekend, is just how seriously they took the, the, their task, that there was no grandstanding, even though um, the majority to reflect the demographics were Leave voters. There was no grandstanding and there was a real desire to try to come together. And I think this touches upon a much broader issue um, about uh, the divisions in the United Kingdom. Again, some of the research that we've been doing shows that actually, identity politics is very much alive and kicking. And my political science colleagues tell me that in fact, many more people in this country still identify on the leave remain access than they do on Labour conservative um, divide. And the country, John, John, um, uh, my uh, colleague at Strathclyde um, is absolutely adamant that um, the country is still split down the middle Um, over leave remain we are still pretty much at 50 50 now okay some of the polls show a slight favoring of um, remain now but the bottom line is it's still hovering
4: around that 50 50 mark
0: thank you um um, and may you wanted to come in on this one as well
4: yeah and, and just to follow up on the last bit because it links in nicely to what catherine just said i think Personally, I always viewed it a loss of an opportunity, a missed opportunity when the referendum happened and the, the call was so close that the government then didn't say, we need to see why this is the case. What are the underlying reasons that we have this division and that we came to such a high percentage of people saying, yes, we want to leave? Um, because I personally think that there are a lot of uh, social economic policies and um, uh, things that have happened in the UK over the past say 10-20 years um, that have kind of built um, the case for what what in the end was uh, the leave case. And I, my fear is a bit that if you then now with the Brexit deal being done, don't take that opportunity up yet again to say, okay, we still have a consensus 50-50 divide, if you don't take up the opportunity to try and investigate why that is and what you can do nationally in terms of policies to to counteract those sentiments, um, which I think are more in terms of opportunities and and economic benefits and um, your your university degrees and your chances in the future and all of the, the austerity policies and everything, if you don't take the chance to review that then I think the rift won't, I I fear the rift won't be healed. You just, you know, at some point you need to, you know, ask the tough questions and say, why are we here? And try and fix that.
3: Okay. I would say I completely agree with that, that the, the socioeconomic aspects are something critical that we have to think about. But I would even go a step further and say that the focus on remain versus leave is perhaps something we have to move past now. And there's going to be a whole generation of young people whose entire adult life will be spent in a post-Brexit Britain. And from their perspective, I think there are lots of other things that we should be focusing on and and you know, creating some unity around, one of which uh, you might say is the climate emergency. And of course, the UK has a massive opportunity this year when it comes to global leadership on climate change because we're, we'll be hosting uh, the COP26 conference in Glasgow in November. So this is, this is perhaps a real opportunity, particularly with um, Joe Biden in the US bringing, uh, bringing the US back into the, the Paris accord. This is an opportunity to move forwards on a new issue. And I think that if the UK can start to show that it can act in an effective and united and successful way on a given issue, that might help to, to build up that unity that's been lost by all this focus on division.
0: It's interesting because there's a lot of research showing that um, that actually issues around climate change is cutting across political divisions and that it's it is is piss pulling people together now. And uh, so maybe that's something that uh, might be healing. Uh, as well as really really important
1: I mean I think I mean I think Emily is absolutely absolutely right I mean the House of Commons Foreign Affairs committee commissioned some uh, some research as part of their report on global Britain a few months ago um, and it showed actually that that um, we st- we're still a country that's perceived as having what the committee called convening power in other words despite everything we still do resonate in the world for being a country that is a, an upholder of democracy and uh, and human rights and uh, I, I agree with Emily if you if you if you if you have a compelling a compelling uh, message which is sort of existential uh, message and you can pursue it you know, with 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 consistency and imagination and so far this government seemed to show that they have that 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 is that's that's, a, that's a quite a powerful factor uh in still keeping you relevant and open, opening doors in other countries
0: thank you let's just move um, we're, we're running out of time but i just want to pick up a question here because it teases out something that we were saying uh, earlier on which i think is really important the question comes from mark wainwright and says isn't the stronger together argument very weak especially in scotland and northern ireland when the alternative would probably involve rejoining the much larger union of the eu so it's how do how does one tackle that tension who does one team up with
1: well, I think I think I think this is one of, this is one of the issues for uh, uh, for uh, for Scotland, and obviously, you know, the fact that they were they were partly persuaded to to vote to stay in in twenty fourteen because that was the way of staying in the European uh, Union gives strength now, obviously, to the alternative uh, alternative uh, argument. But the issue for for Scotland again, if you can focus on the kind of realities, is uh, okay. I think they they, they would self evidently qualify for membership, but that membership would include membership of the uh, of the Eurozone, they would take with them into independence a large amount of, uh, uh, of debt, and at the end of the day, um, small countries in the European Union, uh, which Scotland would be one, have to fight for their voice to be heard. It is, it is still a European Union dominated by the big by the big countries, and I think that after the initial euphoria, Scotland would find actually getting getting their influence felt, heard, and felt, would be quite difficult.
0: Anyone else want to pick up on that one? That's a really important point.
2: Um, I Absolutely. Well, I agree with what Stephen's just said. The counter argument is, of course, that Scotland uh, voted uh, leave in 2016. Um, Sorry, it says again, Scotland voted Remain in 2016, as did uh, Northern Ireland. It was only Wales that voted to leave and, of course, England voted to leave. Um, And, of course, the counter argument is that uh, Scotland's voice, if if Scotland perceives its voice is not being heard by Westminster, um, it could join the EU and the argument is its voice would be amplified. Um, in a bigger union. Um, and of course, what we've also seen throughout this process is that uh, the EU is um, sensitive to the issue that it doesn't protect smaller members and so spends a lot of time devoting resources on smaller members. Look at the resources devoted to Ireland and indeed even Northern Ireland, uh, leaving aside the. Uh, um, Article 16 um, mess up last week. And so you can see a narrative that the Scottish Government could run that we would be um, more influential, more powerful, and crucially for Scotland, which has a significant financial services sector, they would be able to take advantage of passporting, um, which they have currently lost um, through um, being part of the United Kingdom um, post Brexit.
0: We are running rapid out of time, we could run and run on that particular question, but I think let's, let's um, just return now to um, our poll. So let's just go to, back to that question. So having heard this discussion, the question is, are you concerned about how the UK's new relationship with the EU will affect our sense of identity and belonging? Yes, no, unsure. Let's see how we've panned out. Uh, It's like election night. (laughs) ah. So we've gone up to 78, 16 and 6. So actually that's very interesting. So the um, yes has increased slightly from 73% to 78. Uh, No has actually increased by 1% from 15 to 16 and unsure has halved from uh, 12% to 6. So it's this discussion has clearly helped people clarify their, their views, but it's still uh, predominantly around uh, the answer being yes. Um, so that's an interesting uh, response. Um, we need to wrap up, but it's an opportunity for any of the panelists. If there's a final message that you want to, to send out, uh, this is your moment. Perhaps you'd just like to, one reflection, perhaps you could start with Catherine.
2: Um, My reflection is that we are in for a very bumpy ride, both um, internally and externally. at the very time when we actually need um, some calm heads and actually we need to be boring for a bit. I mean that um, because uh, in fact we actually need to have a very boring relationship with the EU for the next two or three years as we work our way through all of these committees which the TCA sets up, the trade and cooperation agreement sets up, um, so that we can smooth out some of these difficulties in a much less febrile atmosphere. The trouble is all of the politics point to um, high stakes, drama and not boringness.
4: <laughs> Stephen. Well
1: I just, I mean, I was very up by Emily's point. You know, the baton, the baton will pass and should, in my view, should pass as soon as possible to a new to a new generation. And there will be there will be people for whom very quickly uh, this this old argument uh, disappears. And they 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 will need to think about how Britain uh, as uh, still a significant but nonetheless in global terms a relatively small country uh, can actually advance its interests. Thank you. Emily? Yeah,
3: so I would say, yeah, a couple of opportunities this year, one being the G7 presidency and the other being COP26. These are things that we can focus on to try and unite our country again. And that really has to be the priority uh, at this point. But also to to not despair that our our relationship with the EU is not going to dissolve completely. We do have very strong trade links um, and those cultural ties won't disappear completely overnight. And may.
4: Yeah, I agree with what Emily just said. We've already got our European partners reaching out to us, saying, "How do we make sure we, you know, continue to exchange and continue to work with with each other, also on the research side?" But I think there is a couple of years coming that where we just have to work really hard to um, do what we previously done naturally through the EU and where we previously might have just thought, all, oh, you know, just take things for granted. Now, all of a sudden, we have to work hard to make them work. Um, yeah, and I think that's something that the coming years will we'll have to do, um, not just our sector, I would imagine, many more sectors as well.
0: Thank you very much indeed. And thank everyone for joining us today. Um, if you'd like to get alerts about forthcoming webinars, you can sign up on the Keep in Touch page of our website or simply email us at inquiries at cumberlandlodge.ac.uk. And a reminder that dialogue and debate normally takes place at 11 a.m. on the first Wednesday of each month. Also, we're currently running three additional webinars in the lead up to our 2021 police conference. And we've got a fascinating range of speakers from policing and wider society who are exploring criminal justice approaches to addressing historical wrongs Uh, issues around, say, child abuse, events such as the Hillsborough disaster, etc. Really difficult territory, but also really important issues. If you're interested, please visit the What's On page of our website to find out more. And just before I say goodbye, I'd like to highlight that like all charities, Cumberland Lodge is facing difficult times. And if you'd like to support our work, we'd be grateful if you consider making a small donation and you can do so online via our Just Giving page, and we'll put up the link uh, to that immediately after the webinar. Thank you again to all our wonderful guests, to Catherine and May, Emily and Stephen, and thank you all for joining us. Goodbye. Thank you.